0: you guys all got back pretty early usually it takes people about four or five minutes after three before everybody settled in Namo Tasa, Hagavato, Arahato, Sama, Sambuddasa. Namor Tasa, Hagavato, Arahato, Sama, Sambuddasa. Namor Tasa, Arahato, Sama, <coughs> Am I coming in well in the back, not too loud or anything? Good. Unlike the other two Bhantes, my, I have a loud mouth, so <laughs> I don't want to drown anybody out. All right, friends. Welcome to the middle of this retreat. You've survived this far practicing metta. Very good. And you've learned from Bhante G and Bhante Silananda pretty much every sutta, or almost every sutta, on (laughs) metta. But don't worry, I have a few up my sleeve. (laughs) So um, a lot of what I am going to be focusing on in my two talks uh, are actually, this talk is kind of new, although there's some old elements that I've used before that I've put together, and I've named it the metta ideal. Because in this talk, I want to show you the ideal that the Buddha puts forth for us to practice metta. And keep that word ideal in mind, because that is what it is. And then on the last day of the retreat, I want to talk to you guys exclusively about how to take metta off the cushion. How to live metta. How to make it part of your livelihood. Or, as I like to say, how to become an avatar of metta. So those are going to be my two talks. Bhante Seal is going to talk about metta and mindfulness tomorrow, which is a talk I've heard before. It's a very good talk. So it's an important thing to know. So even though <coughs> you've had two very senior monastics talk to you about the definition of metta, I'm going to put my two cents in, speaking about the definition of metta. So it's true that it's already been established that uh, metta does not mean loving kindness, but loving friendliness. So that's been established. I'm going to go a little bit further. Uh, When you look at the word metta, you can... Scholars debate the root of the word. <clears throat> the, uh, the most used word that they debate the root for metta is mitta or mit, which means friendship, friendliness. <clears throat> so you might wonder, well, where does the loving part of loving friendliness come in? That comes from people who use another root, the root mid M-I-D and this root has a couple different meanings it means love but it also means to grow fat (laughs) so you could translate metta as growing fat with friendliness (laughs) what is growing fat with friendliness our mind So, I uh, am one of those who tend not to use the word love when it comes to metta. Um, I think that it has a lot of connotations and contexts that we understand in English that don't quite fit um, what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about metta. My, if I have to translate, these days I don't translate much of the Pali words. I tend to use just the word itself because it's really hard to find a good English word to really encapsulate um, a lot of these Pali words. But these days my preferred translation is actually from uh, a senior monastic called Tanasaro Bhikkhu. He translates it as limitless goodwill. <clears throat> and if you look up friendship or friendliness in the dictionary, you'll see to act uh, having feelings of goodwill towards somebody so goodwill and friendliness are one and the same and so <clears throat> that is what metta is the having this feeling of friendship of friendliness for all beings like the sun's rays shine down on all beings. You have this feeling of friendship for all beings without distinction. Now, of course, you don't have to accept my explanation and the way I view things, that's perfectly fine. But I did want to put out another, um, another way of how metta is viewed and how metta is taught for you guys to um, you know, use for your own practice. So when we think about metta, the word that uh, in Pali that's most used when we talk about metta is called metta ceto vimutti. It means release of mind through metta. And when you think about release of mind, you think, well, what are we releasing our mind from? releasing our mind from anger. And so this is one topic that hasn't been broached too deeply so far, so I get to do it. If you know the Dhammapada, the first lines of the Dhammapada go like this. All actions are led by the mind. Mind is their master. Mind is their maker. Actors speak with a defiled state of mind, then suffering follows, as the cartwheel follows the foot of the ox. Most of you, if you've been around Buddhism long enough, you've heard that a million times, right? But what I'd like for you to do is to really delve into that line. Think about that simile. The Buddha is comparing a mind full of hatred and aversion and negativity to an ox pulling a cart think about that ox you have this beast that's lashed up to a heavy cart so he, he not only does he have to move and carry all this heavy weight there's probably some person on top of that with like a whip going whoosh, whoosh, come on move faster you know so this poor ox has to carry this weight. he's getting whipped, and then those of you who maybe uh, have experienced carrying wheelbarrows or carrying things behind you, which you might uh, have experienced is oftentimes you'll actually get nipped by the wheels. I've had that happen to me many times. It's not pleasant. So this is the Buddha says, just like the cartwheel follows the foot of the ox. So this ox is carrying a heavy burden and he's uh, in a pretty miserable situation. Well, those of you who have been meditating for some time, those of you who've been able to kind of begin to examine and investigate and understand your mind, you might have noticed what a mind full of anger and aversion and hatred and resentment feels like. To me it feels like very very heavy very horrible actually I have an aversion to aversion (laughs) these (laughs) days (laughs) when I have that feeling in my mind I just I I just want to release it somehow get it away because it's so unpleasant and and I think about the ox in this simile so then there's the opposite the second Verse of the Dhammapada. Mind is the master. No, wait. Why did I mess it up? <laughs> okay. All actions are led by the mind. There we go. All actions are. You know what happens when you hear multiple translations of things? You mix things up. When I told you guys the other day the, the, the way that the Buddha taught um, metta meditation, I mixed up that and the Karaniya Metta Sutta together. So that's what happens with the mind. too many translations alright so all actions are led by the mind mind is their master mind is their maker actors speak with a pure state of mind then happiness follows you like your shadow follows you without departing think about this simile what is it a mind this happy joyous friendly mind very calm very peaceful, right? That is a mind that's so light and so wonderful. We all want that that mind state. We strive for that mind state so that we can be nice and happy and peaceful. <clears throat> and think about our shadow. It weighs nothing. We barely even ever acknowledge its existence. There's my shadow right there. Right? Only and I'm only looking for it because I'm doing this simile. Alright? So that's the difference. And if you've been lucky enough to see that change, it's amazing. I've been able to to have that where my mind is full of aversion and hatred and anger and then three minutes later, it's gone and it's peaceful and calm and wonderful. And so you get to actually compare those two states of mind and it becomes very easy which state of mind you'd prefer to have abiding um, in your mind for all this time. So this is what metta, this is the purpose of metta. This is how we release, we release our mind from anger, from all of these aversive tendencies. We practice metta because it is the direct counter to ill-will in our mind. Now of course you've also, Bhante Sila talked to you about we practice metta for our serenity and our tranquility concentration meditation. And that's exactly true as well. Because a mind that is full of hatred and aversion is not going to attune to tranquility and peace and have good concentration. A mind, if you are able to see your mind, you can see it's like you, somebody comes along, grabs you, straps you in a roller coaster, puts the belt on, and you can't do anything until the ride is over. If you've, you know, in my career, those of you who know me or those of you who may have read my bio, you know I worked in Child Protective Services. I worked with a lot of people. And I worked with people who had anger that debilitated their life. And I could see it in them, and they—they, they, I could see that they didn't want it, that they wanted to change, but it was so overpowering, and I could see that, you know, they would get into—it's almost kind of like the Hulk, right? Like the guy turns into the Hulk, <laughs> you know, and then afterwards you go back to being a, a human again, and then you talk to people who who have that experience, even just all of us—we get in fights with our family and friends and all of these kind of things you know, <clears throat> we, we start going back and forth and it escalates and then you start saying things and then afterwards you feel really bad and you say, I didn't mean it, right? I never liked that growing up because I was like, yeah, you did. You really did mean it. You just wouldn't say it until your mind was really angry and really, you know, <clears throat> you know it would come out then. So you regret what happens after you get thrown into that roller coaster and and it's like you have no control and then at the end you're like oh man what the heck did I do why did I do that and you have this guilt and remorse and all of these things so anger is anger is one hell of a drug I mean it's a it's a tough tough thing so in the Noble Eightfold Path, which I'll be talking a little bit about tomorrow. Um, In the Noble Eightfold Path, under right intention, there's three parts to that. Right? Right intention of renunciation, not covetousness and greed. Right intention of metta, not ill will. And right intention of compassion, or non-harming as opposed to harming. So not only is metta right there in the noble eightfold path, it's right intention. But it is also the counteract that it also counteracts one of the three unwholesome roots. You might know what those are. <clears throat> the Buddhist definition of nibbana of awakening is the abandoning of three things greed, hatred, and delusion. It's because of greed, hatred, and delusion, the world is the way it is. It's because of greed, hatred, and delusion that we are, we act how we act. To go over this briefly, the Pali words are lobha, dosa, and moha. Lobha is often translated as greed, uh, you can think of it as our our attachment. Our Our normal MO is that we <clears throat> experience pleasant things. Pleasant sights, smells, touches, tastes, all of these things. We experience these pleasant things. And we like it. And we want more of it. We chase after it. We try to, if we have it, we try to hold on to it and not let it go. That is our greed, that is our uh, attachment, right? And so how we go against that is that first right intention of renunciation, nekama, letting go, practicing letting go. That's how we abandon our greed. Dosa is aversion, ill will, all, all of it. Hatred, ill will, resentment, all of that, all wrapped up into one. And what is that? When we experience something that we don't like, people, places, experiences, unpleasant experiences through the, you know, unpleasant tastes, touches, smells, whatever, sights, we don't want to have anything to do with it. We want to push it away. That's where that the term revulsion comes from. We think of, like, Revulsion as like Ew. but revolt simply means to push away. Right? So we push it away. We want to hide from it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. Maybe we want to be like an ostrich and put our head in the sand. Right? We don't want to have anything to do with it. We push it away. And so we're stuck in this mode of running after things we like and running away from things we don't like. And that is What uh, part of what causes us, causes our suffering, our dukkha. And of course, the third is moha. And so moha means delusion. This is that because of our ignorance, because of our craving, we don't see things, we don't see the world as it is. We don't see how our mind and our body works in its reality. We're deluded. Right? This is where uh, not-self comes in and all of this, our, our views and our perceptions, all diluted. And so we have these three things, loba, dosa, and moha. And metta goes directly right at one of them. So that alone can tell you that metta is no small thing. Metta is no easy matter. Metta is an extremely important part of the practice because this is how we are tasked with dealing with abandoning, releasing our mind from anger. And so in the Anguttara Nikaya, I'm pulling one of the suttas out of my sleeve that hasn't been used yet, there's a sutta called subduing hatred and the Buddha, And by the way, for those of you asked, I've been trying to keep track of most of the suttas said so far and I'm going to put them on the board probably tomorrow or the next day after that so you guys will be able to read it. Um, So in this sutta, the Buddha gives five ways of dealing with anger that has arisen regarding another person. There's only, you've been told so far that the Buddha never taught giving metta to individual people, and that's mostly true. There's two places that I found in the suttas where he actually does teach giving metta to individual people, and both of them are in this talk. The first one's here. So if you have a person who's brought up aversion and anger and and um, you know all kinds of this this negative mind states in your mind, there's five things that you do. The first one's a big duh the first one's practice metta <laughs> practice metta towards them all right that's the first one the second one is practice compassion towards them so metta is you trying you're ha- developing that friendly feelings towards this person you know, you can think about one of the, the great things that i found whether you believe in the rebirth and all that kind of stuff there's so many things that the buddha uses as wonderful techniques for breaking through our 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 views <clears throat> towards other people and one of them the buddha says that you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who at one point wasn't your mother your father your brother your sister etc so that's one of the techniques that i use if i have aversion towards somebody if that arises well one of the you know sometime in the past they were my mother Sometime in the past they were this. We're all kind of what I call. <laughs> but Bhanteji said that we're all one. And I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> the Buddha never technically taught that we're all one. Um, but I think what Bhanteji was saying is that we are all one and that's the fact that we suffer. I call it siblings in suffering. So that's technically what we are. We're all siblings in suffering we're all stuck in samsara right and so when you have when you realize okay this person is my sibling in suffering then it's much easier to practice metta for them you know okay they're in this hellhole just like i am <laughs> so i can practice metta for them and that can alleviate let my anger go and then the second one is practicing compassion You can realize, you know, somebody pulls, you know, uh, cuts you off in traffic or whatever, and initially you're like You can think to yourself, well, maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're having a bad life. Maybe, you know, you you can have that compassion and understanding, well, maybe, you know, they don't need my anger, and the anger's just hurting me anyway. So I can have compassion for that person. The third is equanimity. To have an equanimous mind. If you can't develop good thoughts about the person, at least you can <laughs> let go of the aversive thoughts about the person. The fourth is to um, the fourth is to remind yourself. Actually, no, The fourth is to yeah. No. The fourth is to remind yourself that they are the owners of their actions. The owner of their karma. Whatever they're doing, they're causing themselves suffering. They're playing a part in causing other people suffering. And then the last one, which might be the fourth one, I don't remember. (laughs) But the last one is to try to avoid and ignore. That's the last one. To try to be away from them as much as you can. At least so that you can you know, try to calm yourself and, and, you know, let go of your anger. So you see, you've been been told about the Brahma-viharas, right? The four Brahma-viharas. These are the way you dwell like in a heavenly realm. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka. So three of those five are Brahma-viharas. Metta, Karuna is compassion, and upeka is um, equanimity. The one that's not listed in, one, in the five is mudita, appreciative joy. And I've thought about that, and I wonder why isn't that in there? And I think maybe it's because if you, if you have aversion for somebody in that moment, it's probably not going to help you if you try to think about, be, you know, be happy for all the good things that they have. Okay. So that probably won't help you in that moment. But... Um, <clears throat> So that is a good sutta for us to, the Buddha is telling us, this is, you know, when you have this come up towards a person, follow this, practice this. And there's a story, a very famous story, that's been told for thousands of years. And it's told in a couple different ways. Those of you who are Ajahn Brahm fans, you've heard this before. Although you haven't heard it the way I'm going to tell you. Because I heard the way Ajahn Brahm and I read the way some other monks taught it. And when I looked at it, and when I looked it up in the suttas, actually it was different. So I'm going to tell you the sutta version of this. It's called the angry eating demon. So the story goes that there is uh, in the hall, the king hall of Saka. Saka is the king of the devas. You know, and there's his throne and everything. That's where he reigns, you know, of his Deva land. And um, so he was gone. <clears throat> and this Yaka. Yakas are usually translated as demons. I think, I personally think they get a bad rap. But <laughs> they're kind of like not seen too well. Um, but uh, so this Yaka comes in and this yaka is like really all ugly and you know demon like you, you ever like watched Lord of the Rings you see like the orcs and things like that like that, that's what yakas are supposed to be like these like big troll orky kind of things <clears throat> and so he comes in and he just sits right down on the throne of Saka and all of the attendants all of the devas are really like I can't believe that this, be, this demon would have the audacity to come and sit down on our king's throne And so they start like, you know, yelling at him and cursing at him. The Buddha calls that throwing verbal daggers. So they're throwing verbal daggers at him. And every time that they threw their aversion, their negativity at him, remember he started out as this big ugly ogre. He kept getting more handsome, more calmly, more beautiful. So they were feeding this ugly anger and it was getting more sweet, right? And the version you might have heard from Ajahn Brahm it's the reverse. <clears throat> it's they're, they come in and then they get uglier as you feed more, right? So in the suttas though, it's, it's like taking your aversion and this negativity and it's saying, ah, this is good, this is what I like. It's making me into this awesome, you know, good looking being, right? And so, then they get really frustrated, man, we can't do anything for this guy. We're, we're trying to get him out of the, the throne, but he won't go. And then Saka comes, and Saka is not an awakened being, but he is considered to be like a student of the Buddha, and he's a practitioner, which is rare in the deva realms. A lot of times the devas are too blissed out to be practicing Dhamma, but Saka is one of the exceptions. And uh, so he goes, and he comes in, and he sees this and his attendants tell him what happened and he was like well duh if you guys pr- listen to the Buddha you'd know what to do <laughs> no he didn't say that not in the suttas <laughs> not in the sutta anyway but uh, so he goes and he announces his, his, his name he says I am Saka king of the the devas and so basically what he was doing was he was announcing his goodness he was announcing he was showing his goodness and his metta towards this this demon and each, and the more he did that, the more the demon reverted to its former self, and then eventually it went away. So that's the anger-eating demon. And so I've thought about this way from the sutta and why it would be in this reverse way, because it's not as intuitive this way. Um, but I think it's related to you know when we get angry, you it can sometimes we feel really good, right? This this like Justice anger. Like you feel that, the, you know, righteous anger. I am angry because this is a good reason for me to be angry, and they did this and they did that, and I am justified in being angry. And that is like very sweet. That feels very sweet. <clears throat> but underneath is that ugly demon. Right? So, and the Buddha does not play with anger. There's some things that he does not play with. There's some things that he does not budge an inch. And anger is one of them. And if somebody came up to him and, uh, and said, is there one thing that you agree, or there, is there one thing that you suggest killing? And he said, yes, there is one thing I suggest killing. Anger. That's the only thing that I've ever seen the Buddha say that you can kill. You can kill anger. So he doesn't play with anger. He doesn't, and he says that um, one of the other things that he says is knowing that the other person is angry. One who remains mindful and calm does so not only for their benefit but for the other person as well. Right. So when the Buddha talks about things, when he's talking about anger, when he's talking about all of the the unskillful acts that we do, he's being serious and he's not playing because what he understands is that to him, he's not just thinking about this life. If you read the monastic rules, you'll see many times where the Buddha said, better that you died horribly than perform this act. Because what he's saying is long term, short term, yeah, it was a horrible death, but long term over many lives, it would have been better if you just died before performing the, that that act so the, the Buddha does not you know the, so he doesn't play when it comes to that stuff with our, With he has that compassion for that he wants us to make sure that we are living skillfully and not doing things that are going to cause us suffering in the future and so I wanted to end this section with, with something that was already <laughs> I think Bhante Sila said it this morning actually um it's the, the fifth line, the fifth verses of the Dhammapada. And it says, hatred is never appeased by hatred. Only by non-hatred is hatred appeased. This is an eternal law. So you can think about that. And you can think it sounds nice and flowery and you know, good things and stuff like that. But is that really how it works in the real world? You can look in the real world. Look, in, look at governments, look at state, uh, nation states, countries, right? Maybe there's a tyrannical dictator and he like, makes the people's lives really horrible. And so the people rise up and they kill him and they take over. And then the people who take over just end up being just as bad as the person that they killed, right? <laughs> so you can see that violence is not really Maybe it's a short-term solution, but it's not really a long-term solution. It doesn't really actually appease the hatred. It just pushes it down the line. So when you think about it, and you can understand, well, this is, this is correct. Right? Why, if, if I just, if somebody is coming at you angry, and you come back at them angry and defensive, what happens? All it does is escalate all it does is just make it worse and then one of you are knifed or shot or something like that <laughs> or the police are called or whatever so you never, a part of a, a, a meta practitioner's practice is to never escalate you always want to de-escalate that is having metta for people so we I guess that's probably about the end, or at least close to the end, um, about hatred. And so I'm going to go a little, I guess what you call it, psychology on you now. Because this is related to metta and it's related to hatred. There's a wonderful poem, those of you who've who've been to my metta stuff before, you've heard this many times before. And it's not by the Buddha. It's not by a Buddhist guy. It's from a guy who lived at the end of the 1800s. And it's not a Buddhist poem either. But I think it perfectly encapsulates metta. And it goes like this. They drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took them in. That is metta no matter how, who, if they draw you out of your, their circle, you draw them, everybody in your circle. And so the reason I bring that up is because this next section I want to talk about is something that is deeply ingrained in most beings, not even just human beings. We have this tendency, this capacity that we do what's called us versus them or in-group and out-group, right? And this is, something, this is something that we do naturally. The people that we like are in our in-group. Oftentimes that's our family and our friends. Everybody else is in the out-group. Or everybody in my country is in the in-group. Everybody else is in the out-group, right? And that's kind of natural. That's, that's part of our nature, part of our, you know, our biology you can even think of it as a survival mechanism, right? We we probably wouldn't have survived to be here as a species without this mechanism. But in modern times, it can actually go against us. So when we think about, you know, when anger arises, think of what I, as somebody who's been always in kind of the the middle ground in politics and things like that as a lay person, I always saw that there was a fairly big divide in this country. But the last two years, I've seen it just grow and, and it's like, it's vicious now. It's not pleasant now, right? And that's it's nothing necessarily new. It goes back to this, this us versus them. My team versus their team, Coke versus Pepsi, McDonald's versus Burger King, right? Buddhists versus Christians, whatever. That's, that, we have that tendency to, to group people into this in-group and out-group. And so I found that the understanding of this is to be very important for my metta practice you know I've heard scientists talk about this and and they say it's probably impossible that we could ever eradicate that from our biology from our genetics this in-group in this out group but I thought about it I said okay so we can't ever eradicate that but can we make the in-group larger And the outgroup smaller. Can we include everybody in existence in our in group? And then the outgroup is there. (laughs) Right? That's metta. Metta is including everybody in your in group. In your us. That's why when I when I do metta, I use all of us. All of us, because that's me and everybody. We're all siblings in suffering. You know, we're all together in this life. I I like to describe it as we get thrown into this world and we have no idea what we're doing and our parents and our society tells us a little bit and then we end up being like ping-pongs, just kind of like going our way, trying to find happiness and meaning and we, you know, sometimes we do that unskillfully and we bump into each other and, you know, cause suffering and all this kind of stuff. So this is us and them. And so metta allows us to gradually, slowly, whatever feelings we have towards a particular group, whatever it is, they are siblings and suffering. We have metta for them. Even animals. Right Bhante Sila mentioned briefly that simile, uh, that sutta called by a snake and the Buddha the Buddha gives the way to practice and says I have metta for those with no feet may those with no feet not harm me I have metta for those with two feet may those with two feet not harm me etc etc for four feet for many feet right so Metta breaks through even those bears, even spiders and all the creepy crawlies. In that sutta it says, creepy crawlies are limited. The Buddha and the Dhamma are unlimited. <laughs> so I have made my protection. Beings, please depart. Right, so this is another aspect of metta that's important. Like Metta is not like you see a big anaconda in, in the woods and you're like, Oh, I love you big anaconda and you're like hugging it and things like that. You know, metta is not necessarily being um what would you call it? Uh I'm trying to think of the word. Where you the the you, people often think that Buddhists are total pacifists. Right? And that's not necessarily the case. So metta is not necessarily that you just Love everybody, and then you can just you know, whatever, and you just take whatever. You you can't live with a snake, right? There's a there's a story of this monk, who goes in in Thailand, and he goes to his kuti, and there's a, a poisonous snake in there, and he's in the and he goes in the kuti a little bit, and he met and he gives the snake metta, and 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 he says to the snake, you know, um, you know, being I have metta for you, and uh, you know, but we cannot live so close together one of us will have fear and harm the other so please depart and so he came out of his his kuti and then you know a short time later the snake comes out right so that so that's metta that's that metta where you you know you can't necessarily um you know be in this huggy lovey you know hugging all beings Um, sometimes beings will use that, uh, think you're weak, and they'll use that against you. Or sometimes you've hurt being somebody, and you you come back and now you're all, oh, love and metta, and they're like, get away from me, and all these kind of things, right? (laughs) So sometimes you just have to, metta is just this goodwill, this friendship, that you wouldn't want to, you don't feel any desire of harm or of negativity towards these beings. We can be friends. Now that doesn't mean that we're all going to get together in the world and hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's not metta either. (laughs) That's not metta. So metta is for the eradication of ill will in our own mind. Okay, so I wanted to talk about now gratitude. Because practicing gratitude goes against another form of dosa that's this resentment other people have things that you don't have or life or things aren't going how I feel they should right? or I should have this or I should have that or things should be this way there's lots of things in the world that resentment can come up for us lots of things and some of them may be even justified right (laughs) but Anger and resentment never help us. They never lead us somewhere skillful. They might be pointing towards something that you feel like you need to, to do or to address. But if you do that or if you address that issue while, with a mind of anger and resentment, it's not going to go well. Your mind, when your mind is full of anger and resentment, it's clouded. You, there's no mindfulness there. You can't see clearly. So you don't know the right thing to do. You're just going with the flow. You're being the hulk. You know, you're getting on that roller coaster ride, and then that's it. So practicing gratitude helps with that resentment. <clears throat> the Buddha says that if there's one person that is rare in the world, a person with gratitude. Even the Buddha says that's rare, right? <clears throat> it goes against our resentment to practice gratitude. You know, I've, in my work, I met people, any kind of mental health issue, drug issue, dirt poor, whatever, I met people who had nothing. But yet they were positive and they rose above their surroundings and they they really... They were grateful for even the little bit that they did have. And that always blew me away, because was like, wow. If somebody in that situation can do that, I have no I have nothing to complain about. What am I complaining about? Right? That this person, these people who have nothing, can still not allow themselves to be to fall into the dark side, fall into greed and hatred and and all these things like in and just in resentment no i'm gonna you know do the best that i can and be grateful for what i have that's an amazing ability to be grateful because you can uh, you can know that it can always be worse no matter how bad your you are in your life there's always somebody who's worse off than you and if you think about that, you can go to another country, you can see people who have to walk 15 miles a day just to get water for the day and things like that. And we have it pretty easy here in, uh, in America, even though we do have our own struggles and our own tough things that we deal with. <clears throat> so, instead of being resentful towards what we don't have, to focus on the happiness of what we do have will help you help keep your mind clear and help keep that calm, peaceful mind instead of that heavy mind like the ox carrying the the cart. And so with the last amount of time I want to go over a sutta. This sutta, I think personally, it shows the Buddha's ideal of metta. In this sutta, he tells us this is how you should train. It was kind of the coup de grace of this was ruined a little bit by Bhante G, because yeah. he told you what it, he told you the simile of the saw. But I'm going to go over the, the sutta with you. So the simile of the saw starts out with this monk Malia Paguna, and he this the story says that he has become very he's he's associating and hanging out too much with bikunis. These are the the female monastics. And he says, it, and he, they've hanged out together so much that if somebody was to say something bad towards them, then he would get angry and he would make a case of it and he would, you know, throw verbal daggers and all these kind of things. <clears throat> and if somebody were to say something bad towards him, the bhikkhunis would get angry and they'd throw things, you know, be very, make a case of it, right? <clears throat> That's the us versus them, right? So they, this attachment has created this us, <clears throat> And so <coughs> the Buddha finds out about this <coughs> and he calls Paguna and he says, is this true? And he says, yes, Bhante. In the suttas, you see, the, they, they call the Buddha Bhante. He was the only Bhante back then. Now after he left, anybody who's, who's senior is, is a Bhante. Um, <coughs> but, um, So he says, yes, it's true. And he says, this is not appropriate for you to act this way, especially as somebody who has gone forth as a monastic. And he says, this is how you should train. My mind shall remain unaffected, and I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for their welfare, with a mind imbued with metta, I shall pervade them with metta and starting with them I will pervade the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with metta abundant, exalted, immeasurable without resentment or ill will. So keep that in mind. That's how he's telling them how to train. So that's just and that's the beginning. He says this is how you should train. If somebody is to say something bad to you or to the people that you are attached to, this is how you train. And then it, and then it goes higher. If somebody were to throw or hit them with their, with their fists, this is how you should train. My mind shall remain unaffected and I shall utter no evil words. Somebody were to hit them with a clod, my mind shall remain unaffected, and I shall utter no evil words. If somebody were to hit them with a stick, my mind shall remain unaffected, and I shall utter no evil words. If somebody were to hit them with a knife, my mind shall remain unaffected, and I will utter no evil words. You starting to understand what I talk about when I say ideal? Yeah, this is only the beginning. <laughs> <clears throat> and so this is, he's saying whatever courses of action happen, this is how your mind should be. He's not talking about physical actions or what you do physically. He's saying this is how your mind should be if, you, if somebody is doing this. And he tells a story, and it's a funny story. It's a story of the maid, Kali. And uh, she has a mistress named Videhika. And Mistress Videhika is somebody who in the town is, has a wonderful reputation. She is so kind and so peaceful and so wonderful and so gentle. And so Kali decided, Kali thought, is she that way because I do my work and everything's fine? Or is that actually how she is in her mind? So Kali decided to troll her mistress. (laughs) She says, let me find out. So the next morning she wakes up late, and the mistress comes up to her and says, Kali, what is it with this waking up late? What's the matter? And she says, no matter. And she says, you wicked girl. And 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 it says that she has a scowl, right? <clears throat> so, Kali's like, ah, oh, I think I'm on to something. <laughs> so she goes the next day. She wakes up even later, and she says. And then the mistress comes up to her, Kali. What is going on with this? What is the matter with this? Oh, nothing's the matter. And then it says, Kali, she says, you wicked girl. And then it says, then she verbally berated Kali. So the first day, right? The first day, it was in her mind. You You could tell by the scowl, right? It didn't come out yet, but it was in her mind. By the second day, she's just really getting, and so it comes out with verbal daggers towards her. And so Kali's like, ah, okay, I got her this time. So the next day she wakes up even later and she said and the same thing. What is the matter with this? Oh, nothing's the matter. And so then the mistress take a rolling pin and hit her over the head. <laughs> so she, it started out within the mind because the mind is the master of all things, right? It went from the mind to speech to action. And then it says that the Kali was bleeding from her head and she went running through the town and said, look, you see this wonderful uh, mistress's work, this humble and kind mistress, see what happened? And so the Buddha says, well, just like that, everybody can be very, very kind and full of metta and full of peace and everything when things are going well. But you really know if they have metta when the chips are down when they have to experience tough situations that's when you know when somebody has metta so we can think about that in our own life right when things are going peaceful it's very nice i've thought about that like have there's been times in my life where my metta was blissed out and it was wonderful and it was great and then as soon as like that gets challenged my metta goes <laughs> And so that's just that's the way it is. So it's, but that's where we learn. That's where we actually practice in that tough part. <clears throat> and so the Buddha, after this sign, this simile, he says, there are five ways that somebody can speak to you. They can speak to you truthfully or untruthfully, timely or untimely, with good intent or with harmful intent, gently or harshly, with a mind of metta or without a mind of metta? And he says, regardless, you should train thus. My mind shall remain unaffected and I will utter no evil words. And he gives three similes on how the mind should be. And he says to, he says to the, the, the bhikkhus, he says, if somebody were to come along with a shovel and say, I will make this earth, this great earth without earth, and they were to shovel and they were to spit and urinate on the earth and do all kinds of things would they make the earth without earth? and they're like no Bhante why not because he, th- it is so immeasurable and so abundant that this could not happen you would only reap frustration and so he says this is how you should train my mind shall remain unaffected and I shall utter no evil words I shall abide the you know abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind of metta, like the great earth. So you're so you, he's saying to to be like the earth. That the when the mind is that way, when you have a mind of metta, nobody can come along with a shovel and take it away, right? The mind a, a mind that immeasurable, that exalted. Then another simile is the. um if somebody were to come along with turmeric and indigo and all kinds of, I guess, spices and try to draw on air, would they be able to do it? <clears throat> of course, no, because air is limitless and, and abundant and all these things. And it says that is how you should train. And you know, also just like your mind to be like the air, that you cannot put any kind of smirk. Or any kind of, you know, paint or anything on it, because it is. There's nothing that can take that mind of meta away, because of that. And then the third simile is: What if somebody were to have a torch and say, "I'm going to burn up all of the Ganges River"? Would they be able to do it? No, because the the Ganges River is abundant, exalted, immeasurable, huge, gigantic, right? And so, I shall, your mind shall remain unaffected and you shall utter no evil words. You shall abide pervading the world like the Ganges, exalted and immeasurable. And so he's given, he's given you these, this is how your mind should be. This is how you train. Your mind can be this way. Train in this way. And so, then the coupe de Grasse. So here he says, bhikkhus, if a person if bandits were to take you and tie you down and saw you limb from limb anyone who during that time were to let was to let their mind go to anger and ill will are not doing my teaching holy crap wow that's that's like that's the top and so then he goes Keeping in mind the simile of the saw, is there any, you know, is there anything, any course of speech or anything that somebody can say to you that would cause you trouble? And they're like, no, but they, no, we'll we'll practice this way. So it's like, so, you know, they're 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 going off and and having throwing verbal daggers because somebody says something, you know, mean to somebody that they like. And the Buddha is saying, well, this is how you should train all the way up to you're getting sawed in half. and so and the Buddha says then good he says if you keep this advice of the simile of the saw in mind this will be for your benefit for a long time so that's the Buddha's ideal that's how you practice metta that's how you train metta right you gotta think about that word that word is important train it's not that you Become an avatar of metta overnight. It's not that this is how you're supposed to be, and if you think bad words while you're getting sawed in half, you're a bad Buddhist. No, that's the ideal. Like, I've, I've thought about that. I was like, if I was being sawed in half, would I be able to have ma- mind of metta? And, and, and what has come back to me so far is probably not. <laughs> but, uh, but maybe I'm getting there. You know, Metta, metta is an amazing tool. I mean, I don't know if it can heal babies and things like that, um, but I know it can really do a lot of good stuff for your mind. And as I'm going to talk about tomorrow, when you change your own mind and you act that out in the world, that's how you change the world around you. So with that being said, it reminds me of my time is just about up. But I want to tell you one more story real quick that reminds me that comes from the simile of the saw. It's about a monk called Puna. And Puna goes to the Buddha and he says, Buddha, he says, Bante, I want to go to this region of India. And the Buddha says, Are you sure you want to go to that region? They're really rough and gruff and, and they're pretty vicious over there. Suna I think, is the name of the, of the area. And Pune is like, yes, I want to go. And so the Buddha says, well, what if they hurt you with verbal daggers? And Pune said, well, at least they didn't hit me with their fist. They're so civilized. They're so wonderful. They didn't hit me with their fist. Then the Buddha says, well, what if they hit you with their fist? Well, they're so civilized. They're so wonderful. They didn't hit me with a clod. What about if they hit you with a clod? <laughs> they're so civilized, they didn't hit me with, a, with a, a, a stick. Onwards and onwards, they're so civilized. What about a, a, a knife? They're so civilized, they didn't kill me with a knife. They only hit me with a knife. They I said, what if they took a sharp knife and killed you? And then Pune says, there are so many people who want somebody to kill them or want to die, I didn't even have to ask for anybody. <laughs> they just did it for me, it's wonderful. And the Buddha's like, okay, you're ready to go. <laughs> and, and so this, the end of the story is that, the, that he goes to this Zuna Paranta and he, um, you know, many people ordain and, and you know, fought, come to the Dhamma and then he becomes an awakened being. All right, so that's, so that's the other aspect of the ideal. And so, to end, there's a, I'm going to go with the Dhammapada again. There's a line that says, happy we live, friendly amidst hostile, the hostile. Amidst hostile people we live, free from anger. So that's the ideal. That's a, in, in that line, he's talking about awakened beings because there's other stuff to that line too. But one of those is you can be around people You can be around people who've all drawn you out of their circle. But you can draw all of them in your circle. You can have metta for all beings, regardless of how they feel about you, regardless of what what religion, politics, gender, race, whatever. It doesn't matter. Because we're all siblings in suffering. We're all stuck in samsara in this hellhole together. So we can make it worse for ourselves or we can make it better. That's our choice. And I'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow. So I've gone over a couple minutes, which is not too bad. I've gone over much worse. So um, we'll end now. And uh, you can ask, uh, write down your questions and I'll answer them tonight. And uh, we'll take a break and come back for more meditation a do sadu.